Father, for Jesus' sake, we're praying that as we look at your word tonight, again, that we would be edified, that we would be, by your spirit, blessed to be a blessing, that we would find ourselves doing the very opposite of what Christ suffered for when he was hated without a cause. We would delight in his righteousness, rejoice in his exaltation, having been humiliated, but now praised by those who have known your grace. May we know that grace, and may we delight in you, along with the Son and Spirit always. We pray that your blessing would be on, his, on your word then, read and ministered to us. We'd ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be taking a look this evening at Psalm 35, as I mentioned this morning that both this morning and tonight, we were going to be considering uh, the suffering of Christ last yesterday, or this, this morning, I should say, it was uh, seen especially in the fact that Christ was going to have to uh, be humiliated at the cross before he would be exalted. Uh, we see some similar things going on here. As we read through Psalm 35, which points us to Christ, we, we hear about humiliation, we hear about vindication, we hear about praise, and there are points for our sermon, uh, and I think those are also the touchstones of the psalm that point us to Jesus, who of all people was uh, hated without a cause unlike any other. And so we take a moment to look at Psalm 35, and we read the entire psalm. <clears throat> contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he had hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. And my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his, in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O oh Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft, but I... When they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know, tore at me without ceasing like profane mockers at a feast. They gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O oh Lord, will you look on? 
Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. Well, thank you, the great congregation and the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, ha ha, our heart's desire. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. We do thank the Lord for this portion of his word tonight. May it be indeed a blessing to us. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, when we hear the call in Scripture from the Lord to, to love God and to love neighbor, it doesn't take much to find the opposite happening in our world. It doesn't take much at all to find that going on. Uh, even today, you know, we hear, some of you heard of that and in Sacramento yesterday or early this morning, there were six people gunned down, killed, 12 other people injured, and it's just senseless violence. And life is cheap, and blood of innocent people are shed. And in a sense, what you've got going on there is an expression of a kind of hatred without cause. And the psalmist prays to God here for deliverance because he views himself like that. He, felt, he, he, he views himself repeatedly like that. As somebody who is hated without a cause. And he prays for God's vindication and he prays that in the aftermath of that vindication that God might be praised by him and by others who uh, find themselves delighting in this cause, delighting in this vindication that takes place and so we're going to be taking a look this evening, as I mentioned, at, at this one who prays for God's deliverance. He's really a picture of Jesus Christ, who is hated without a cause. We're looking at that hatred. We're looking at that call for vindication. And then we're looking at the praise that happens in the aftermath of that vindication. So it's kind of like a humiliation, exaltation, and, uh, and then the praise of God that comes in light of that exaltation uh, that comes to the one who was hated without a cause. So the psalm's prophetic. 
And it may not hold the same kind of fame that way that we might find in something like Psalm 2 or Psalm 8 or Psalm 22 or Psalm 69 or Psalm uh, 89 or Psalm 118, just to name a few. But the psalm points to Christ in his suffering as somebody who is hated like nobody else <laughs> without a cause. Humiliated, yet vindicated to God's praise, a praise uh, that continues to this day, thankfully. And so first we want to look this, at this prayer for, uh, at God's uh, deliverance as it comes to one who is hated without a cause. And we hear that idea of without a cause mentioned three times in the psalm. Uh, twice it's mentioned in verse 7, and once it's mentioned in, uh, in verse 19. Going just back there to that psalm a moment. I had been thinking about the Gospel of John while I was looking at Psalm 35 here. But back in that psalm that we just read in verse 7, we hear, For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. And then in verse 19 we hear, Let those, not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. David definitely could be viewed, if we look back at his life, as a victim of that kind of hatred. His brothers accused him of ulterior motives coming to the fight between Goliath and Israel. King Saul dealt with him unjustly. His son Absalom dealt with him unjustly as well. And yet Scripture also makes clear, as we're all well aware, that David was not perfect. David's psalm here then speaks both personally, but it also speaks prophetically. He knew unjustified hatred. But on the other hand, it wasn't because he was a perfect person uh, that he could say that, that he was hated without a cause. Now in Psalm 16, we would hear David say, my body will not see decay. The Apostle Peter in Acts quotes that passage, and he admits to the fact that David's body was, in, un, was entombed unquestionably. But that David there, like he is here, was being prophetic. He was prophesying about the Christ who was to come, the son of David, the one greater than David was, the one greater than David who, because of his perfect righteousness, would not see decay. And he didn't. Well, that same typifying principle can be laid out here. Could we say that David was hated without a cause? Of course we could. Could we also answer that negatively? Yeah, not because he wasn't hated without a cause as if he was perfect. David pictured the son of David yet to come, the greater one than David was, Jesus Christ, who truly, was always hated without a cause because of his perfect righteousness. He never deserved anything but delight. He didn't deserve any of the hatred that came his way. And yet Jesus, in John chapter 15, speaks about how that's exactly how he was treated in verses 22 to 25. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, 
they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. This is his opponent. But, he says, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. And what is it? They hated me without a cause. It speaks to that unjustified opposition that Christ faced while he was ministering on earth. It was humiliating. It was a humiliation he didn't deserve. It was unjust. And, and when David elaborates on this principle of, of injustice in our passage, it fits Christ from a New Testament perspective. And, and perhaps that's what you were thinking about as you were reading through and following along with me as we read from that psalm. Because we read in this passage, right, that he's the subject of hatred, though he had shown love. He had shown devotion. He was there for people when they were sick. He prayed for them. He fasted for them. And then the way people showed their gratitude to him was they hated him. And, and they showed that unjustifiable uh, hatred by witnessing maliciously against him, by mocking him. They repaid good with evil. They plotted against him, right? They made traps for him. They spread their nets over pits. They deceived in many ways. And when they think that they have him where they want him, they gloat and they're just yelling aha all the time because they figure they've got him where they want him and that they're going to be in a victorious situation. Well, those are the very same things, right, that Jesus himself had to endure on earth and to the utmost. You know, the government would even say that they found no fault in him, and yet, even there, he's hated without a cause. No two witnesses could agree on charges against Christ, and that's because Jesus Christ knew no sin only to become sin for us so that we might know the righteousness, the salvation of God. And so the love of Christ is so profound that way, isn't it? For those he came to save. Talk about someone who was hated without a cause. His is a love whose boundless depths is that on which we are to dwell each day through thick and thin. Because on the one hand, you have the hatred of humanity that comes upon him from every side and circle, Jew and Gentile, powerful and weak, unjustifiably so, and you've got that on the one side, while on the other side, what you have is all that Christ ever did was love perfectly. I mean, you can't have a more stark contrast than that. And yet the magnitude of that hatred doesn't nullify the love of Christ in any way at all. The hatred of mankind cannot overcome the love of Christ and his righteousness. Now, and that's a blessed thing to, to keep in mind. 
On the contrary, it was it was this depth of, of humanity's hatred for God and neighbor directed toward God incarnate that was the reason in the first place that Christ came to die. Because it wasn't the righteous who needed a doctor, but the sick. It wasn't the righteous he came to save, but sinners. And it wasn't while we were good that he came to save us. It was the exact opposite. We hated him without a cause. But while we were yet sinners, Christ came to die. Hated without a cause, but hated a hatred that would not change this suffering one from being anything, anything, but the perfect lover of God and his neighbor that Christ came to be. You hate Christ, you still have no reason to do it. It had to be the one who never deserved to be hated that we needed so that we could testify to the depths of his inseparable and undeserved love for us called to penitence and faith in him. Now that doesn't mean, however, that, that, that as this suffering psalmist points to the righteous one who showed his loving mercy to, to us in Christ, that he's not concerned about God's justice. That's not true at all, because that's also part of what's going on in this passage. There's definitely humiliation. There's definitely a hatred without a cause. Being hated without a cause, though, is an injustice. And it needs to be meted out. It needs to be addressed. If we can see that uh, in the news or in situations that reach into our lives that being hated with a cause is an injustice, then, then it's certainly something that we can see in a psalm like this one that points to Christ, the perfect one. If there's ever an injustice, if we want to talk about injustice in the world, we want to talk about injustice in the history of the world, there's no greater injustice in the world than when Christ was crucified than the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. Because here was one who's hated without a cause. Any cause. Now in due time, David knew a lot of vindication by the hand of God in various circumstances that he faced. And, and certainly this is true for Jesus Christ also. To which this psalm points. He's asking, you see it in this passage often, don't you? That he's calling for deliverance. He's calling for salvation. He's calling for vindication. He's asking for God's justice. He's looking for God's rescue. And he asks, how long, O oh Lord, will you look on? Contend for me uh, against those who contend against me. From the outset, that's what we hear. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to your righteousness. Let them be put to shame. I don't deserve it, but they do. And there were, of course, different ways that the Lord Jesus was vindicated. 
He was vindicated most profoundly by being raised from the dead on, on the third day because he was hated without a cause. And the earthquakes that struck the area when Christ has died, had died spoke to the vindication, the destruction of Jerusalem in 87 and the enjoining obsolescence of the Old Testament sacrificial system vindicated him. The fact that that all went away, in other words, vindicated Christ. The ascension of the Lord to the right hand of the Most High, taking captives in his train, part of Christ's vindication. The demonic plotters against Jesus by Judas, to the chief priest, to Herod, and the and his, and Pilate, through working in concert together against the Lord and his anointed, they all fall into their own traps, right? That's Psalm 2. As the Lord laughs in heaven and he turns their evil into his greatest good. That is an indication of those who are putting the traps together who fall into them themselves. That's part of God's justice. And vindication continues today, and, and it'll know its fullness one day. There is nothing enviable at all about the carefree life of the unbeliever and the carefree lifestyle of the unbeliever and the chaotic life of the unbeliever when their lives are turned upside down because they, they fail to follow and trust the Prince of Peace. That's a measure of vindication. At the same time, the church of Jesus Christ knows that vindication in fullness is coming and the Christ still goes up, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long? How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The church doesn't seek to be vindictive. Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. The world doesn't understand that. That mentality, right? We live in that kind of a world, right? Where, well, we'll, we'll give as has been given to us. And we're going to get our, our fair share. We're going to get our pound of flesh. We're going to get by hook or by crook what we have coming to us. And the church, in contrast, cries out, how long, O Lord? But God's not slow in keeping his promises, as some consider slowness. In, in one profound way, while vindication carries on to some extent, this is the day of salvation. It's a, it's a day when ultimate vengeance can be avoided. You know, so that the, the day of judgment may be a day of vindication for all those in Christ uh, unto God's praise. And such praise is also that for which the suffering one is praying starts by saying and being vindicated then my soul will rejoice in the Lord exulting in his salvation I will thank God in the great congregation in the mighty throng to praise him my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long to see the the one who was hated without a cause has been vindicated, and now God is to receive praise for that. Well, how does that fit with Christ and with those who follow him? 
Well, of course, we hear similar tones in Psalm 22, don't we? When we hear Psalm 35, we hear a bit of Psalm 22. In, in verse 25 of Psalm 22, we hear, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. That's that great suffering servant psalm of Psalm 22. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. There's these promises, you see, to bring thanks when prayer is answered. Earlier in Psalm 22:22, we read, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Very similar to Psalms 35. Now, it can be easy to understand why David would give praise for deliverance. That's not hard to understand. And yet, we must also understand that no one provides this praise in purer form than the vindicated Christ himself in accordance with his humanity. And that's why in in Hebrews 2.12, and why Hebrews 2.12 would quote from the Psalms as Hebrews underscores the humanity of Christ and the fact that Christ is not ashamed to call those whom he has come to save his brothers. And it quotes that psalm. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Well, how does that happen in everyday life? How does that praise get displayed in everyday life? Well, we know, don't we, that Jesus' humanity is in heaven. He sits at the right hand of God. His divinity has no bounds, but his humanity is in heaven. And we also know that it is through Christ that we're able to worship in heavenly places before the throne of grace. We come, says Hebrews 12, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. That's Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, right? And we know that in that heavenly manner, Jesus is communing with his people in divine praise. Because that's what Hebrews 2 tells us. And yet, how does Christ proclaim the God of deliverance? And how does he lead praise and worship? Charles Spurgeon put it very well. I don't do a lot of quoting when I preach. I don't tend to like to do that too much, but I think this is one of those times that it's worth it. This is what Charles Spurgeon says about this passage that we're looking at tonight. He says, Not in a little household gathering merely does our Lord resolve to proclaim His Father's love, but in the great assembly of His saints, and in the general assembly and church of the firstborn. This the Lord Jesus is always doing, the Lord Jesus is always doing this by his representatives who are heralds of salvation and who labor to praise God. This the Lord Jesus is always doing by his representatives who are heralds of salvation and labor to praise God. In the great universal church, Jesus is the one authoritative teacher 
and all others, so far as they are worthy to be called teachers, are nothing but echoes of his voice. The church continually magnifies the Lord for manifesting himself in the person of Jesus, and Jesus himself leads the song and is both the leader of singing in worship and the preacher in his church. So as you understand that, you, what you're finding out here, and this is what's important in our day and age, is that if you're wanting to know who the worship leader is in the church, the worship leader in the church is Jesus Christ. That's what Spurgeon was saying there as he's commenting on this. Christ is the worship leader. He's both the song leader and he's the preacher. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty song uh, throng I will praise you. That song is praise. And then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all day long. That's preaching. And see, that helps to explain why ministers of the word or elders who are in that position are worship leaders today. They're the worship leaders. Because they represent Christ in the praise of God before Christ's congregation and the throne of grace and worship, where, where God's name is proclaimed in preaching and his name is praised in song. A praise that, of course, includes the congregation. And this congregational praise by the faithful is also what the suffering one is praying will happen. That's what our passage says. Let those who delight now in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. And see, that's what happens in Christian churches, right? You know, by, by grace, God is praised by those who don't hate Christ's righteousness anymore. See, he was hated without a cause. Now he's being delighted in his righteousness. They're delighting in it because it is a righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, that justifies us. It's a righteousness that endures the wrath of God for us. It's a righteousness that continues to intercede for us before the throne of grace. And so, so what's happening when you're worshiping is that God is praised for vindicating Christ for delivering Christ, the first fruit of those who sleep. He's no longer humiliated. He's exalted. He's no longer dead. He's alive forevermore. And so what happens is, is that people are moved with shouts of joy and gladness for such a great covenant God who delights in his servant Jesus, who had been hated without a cause. And reflecting God, worshipers are doing that as well. 
believers are doing that as well. They're not hating Christ anymore. They're delighting in Christ's perfection. What it's meant for them. And that's a reflection of God who delights in His servant. Who delights in His righteousness. Who, who delights in this one who did everything He asked Him to do. And see, that's our calling as well. That's why we get together. Because we want to delight in the righteousness of Christ and what it's meant for us. The suffering of Christ included being hated without a cause as the truly righteous and loving one that he was and continues to be for those he came to save. But now, by grace, that one who was hated without a cause is now delighted by believers in his righteousness. Prayers for his vindication have been answered in many ways, including his resurrection and his ascension, and they're going to be answered in full at his return. And prayers that God might be praised have been answered, and they continue to be wherever it is that people are gathering in worship. Wherever God's people are there, they're not gathering to show how they hate Christ because he doesn't deserve that. They're gathering because they're delighting in Christ's righteousness who leads them in worship by proclaiming and praising God who delights in His servant, who has, who has served Him and His per people perfectly. And so for Jesus' sake, for the praise of God, by the grace of God, may we find ourselves not hating Christ or being blasé about Christ, but rather that we delight in Him. He doesn't deserve our hatred. He deserves our all. He, we're right in delighting in His righteousness. And we're right to delight in His boundless love for us, which we don't deserve. But we can shout with joy and gladness to God for His grace always, just like the, the psalmist did long ago. Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of His servant, who truly was hated without a cause, but who truly deserves all our praise and adoration both now and forever. What a blessing when we take delight in this one who once upon a time was hated without a cause. Amen. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, it's, it's certainly so true about Christ that there's no way that he ever deserved the hatred that was dumped on him but yet He becomes sin for us so that we might know the righteousness of God. And we don't deserve, then, all that He has accomplished through His indescribable love and boundless love that He's shown. 
And yet when we've come to know this righteous Christ, just like you delighted, him in, delighted in Him and you vindicated Him, so also we can delight in Him and we can join with Christ in, in the praise of your vindication. We can delight in Christ and what His righteousness means for us and the boundless love that we can find in Him, not just to be saved, but to live forevermore. So, Father, we, we pray, thanking You, that while Christ was hated without a cause, we can delight in His righteousness always, uh, so that we might praise You, along with the Son and Spirit, the way we should, with delight and joy in our hearts. May you accept our prayers for the sake of Jesus.